Time for another Banker with a Beer presented by Northwestern Bank. I'm Scott. Across the way is Jerry. Jerry, how's it going? Scott, we are having more July in this fall than we've ever had before. I'm loving it, but uh, like these Wisconsin days where you can be wearing, having your air conditioner on on Monday and your furnace on on Friday, we're headed that way. <laughs> it's been a it's been a fun fall. And by the way, go back listen to some of the great episodes we've had in recent weeks, and some very fun guests coming up in future episodes as well. I mean, some very uh, unique guests coming up. But we'll get to those guests when that time comes. Today, we're bringing back one of our, the most popular guests. We have had on this program a favorite, uh, not only for the podcast, but a favorite in the area overall for what he does and kind of the, 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 the commentary and the humor that he provides. Why don't you introduce our guest and the beverage we will be having today to, as you say, lubricate the conversation. Well, we have Mr. Michael Perry is in the house today. Mike, welcome on board. Glad to be back. Uh, he has a litany of things he's involved in, uh, author, uh, stage actor, um, musician, playwright. Uh, it goes on and on. You, you get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to haul garbage, and tomorrow morning I'm going to paint Picasso. So, I mean, I think you, you definitely cover a, a lot of areas there. So, uh, welcome on board. Glad to be back. Glad I enjoy these chats that we have. Well, we're going to be, uh, well, I will say, doing our best to enjoy uh, <laughs> an N.A. beer. It, it's become kind of a, a joke amongst the three of us. Uh, uh, Mike's preference for uh, non-alcoholic uh, beverages, which actually I'm, I'm, I'm fine with, but uh, we do uh, take uh more than our fair share of shots at him for it, and he takes it very good uh, company. So today we're going to be having a Guinness non-alcoholic draft. So we all will give this water roll and see how how it goes. Also, we're going to have, I think, a very engaging conversation. Uh, uh, Mike just self-published a book called Forty Acres Deep. That's uh, really quite uh, moving and quite profound, and uh, very different than uh, his work to date. So. Uh, that's going to start off our conversation, and we'll catch up all on all there is uh, for Michael Perry and uh, the world of sneezing cows. So uh, with that, I will start pouring the beverages. And Scott, why don't you bring Mike on board? I know we'll get to the, the latest project in just a moment, but uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been up to, because it's been uh, a couple of years since we last had you on the program. In fact, we were joking around the last time you were on the program. We were still in COVID protocols. You you were down at the far end of this table we record at, uh, practically three counties away up near Chatech when we were talking to you. Uh, but now you're, you're nice and close to us. So a lot has changed in the world. What's changed uh, and what's been going on with you? Well, I'm self-employed, uh, so I've just been keeping at it. <laughs> I guess the main thing that's changed is I think the last time I was here and I was talking about being a self-employed writer and performer, uh, people will ask you where, where to get your inspiration and I think I said, uh, well, I've got uh, two daughters, one's in braces and one's in college. And <laughs> so that's where my inspiration comes is paying those orthodontist bills and those tuition bills. But since uh, since I was here last, uh, one is out of braces and one is out of college. So we're making progress. And other than that, I've been writing books and I've been on the road a ton. I travel with uh, my band. I do a lot of solo one-man shows. I do a lot of speaking. I speak at corporate events and 
And then when I'm home in rural Fall Creek in my little room above the garage, I, I record a weekly podcast. And then above all, none of this happens if I don't sit down in that little room and write. And that's what brought me here is writing. And so mostly it starts with writing. I, If I remember correctly, you, you've changed your muse, though, Mike, because I think the original muse was your banker, who was uh, a north of the county line. Well, stages of life, although I have good news for him, because so, yeah, I always used to say, people say, where do you get your inspiration? I said, well, my, my muse is a little bald-headed guy named Jim. He sits in a swivel chair at the Sterling State Bank in Chittag, mm-hmm. and uh, um he is my inspiration because if I don't write another book, he takes my house away. Right. That's what I always said. <laughs> then I switched to the daughters. Uh, but now it looks like we, we're, we're considering building and so probably gonna <laughs> <laughs> Jim is back on the spot. Yeah. Jim is, he's certainly in the on deck circle. There I we can go. tell you that. Well, gentlemen, let's. Uh, it uh, looks like beer. It looks like beer. So uh, this is, I just want folks to know that these two gentlemen are making a true sacrifice here. And I also, they don't know. I'm going to take a sip, too. Mm. It tastes like a Guinness. There you <laughs> go. They don't know, but um, I love it when people are not rude, but honest. And the last time I was here, I don't drink. I'm not, I don't have a problem with anybody drinking. I just never started, and I just decided at some point I wouldn't. But um, when I was here, I had, I had to tell them ahead of time, well, you know, I don't drink. And they said, it's okay. We'll get a, a non-alcoholic beer. And we took a swig. I don't, don't remember exactly what we had last time, but we took a swig of it. <laughs> and these two both just went, yeah, no, that's awful. <laughs> yeah. Ca- caliber, caliber. Something oh, like man. That. It just did not light the, light the I, fire. I've told people I enjoyed that so much because, of course, you could have done the Midwestern thing. Like, oh, well, that's interesting. That's Minnesota. We're, we're on this side of the board. Well, we're, people we're, that have got a deep dive into this, into this program know that that beverage that day was was definitely towards the bottom, but towards. Th- th- <laughs> that's, I, that's being generous. I Scott. will say this though, nothing will ever because we we had low expectations to begin with. Nothing will ever, <laughs> and, and it lived up to them. Redoubt. Nothing will ever go below. Had it been our second or third oh. episode, a peanut butter cup like porter. Oh I think we had. Ooh. And we will not mention the the brewery. You can deep dive through some of the earliest episodes and find it yourself because I don't want to throw them under the bus. They they tried their best. The worst thing I think I have had in the entire time we've been doing this podcast. So while this will definitely not rank <laughs> above the bottom 5%, it will not be the worst. Okay. <laughs> I'll concur. I would I'll also concur. I would also, I'm, I'll shut up and let you run your own show here in a minute. But I did want to say, I, we didn't talk ahead of time about what you were going to have today. And this is sweet. And I'm going to ask us to do a quick little toast soon because um, my daughter, her, between her junior and senior year of college, did an internship slash study abroad in Dublin, Ireland. And my wife went over to visit her. And I got to tell you, among other things, Ireland sent us back two committed Guinness drinkers. And so <laughs> they drink the actual real stuff while dad sits over in the corner with his Guinness Zero. But I would just like to say, here's yeah. to my wife and daughter. And Excellent. Well, there you go. All right. Uh, I all, 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 all <laughs> my wife and both daughters, hopefully the one hasn't started on the Guinness yet. Mm. <laughs> well, that's actually, I've been to the, what's it, the St. James Gate Brewery. In oh, okay. Dublin. I've yeah. been to that, and they have another one in Baltimore. 
that I've been to, and they are apparently building a third, but it's more like a brew house mm. in Chicago. Oh, so getting closer, all getting time. closer all the time. So pretty soon, I, you know, <laughs> Augusta, you know, who's you, you could be closer. Well, I, I want to, you know, talk a little bit about this book that you put together, and it's this is, like I said, this is different, and uh, I don't want to give away too much, uh, but I mean, within the first three pages, uh, the spouse is dead, a daughter is dead, and it's in the deep of winter, and you definitely set the tone for a, I'll I'll say a a a, a, a challenging read. Um, where did this come from? I can tell you exactly where it came from. I was, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, four or five winters ago, and then again two or three winters ago, and as you were mentioning about COVID, we lose track of time these days. But we had a couple of winters where the snow was just unrelenting. It just kept stacking and stacking. And I've got two great big pole barns, and I was watching it stack up and not shed, so to speak, and I was getting nervous about them falling in, and... And indeed, that winter, a bunch of farmers, I mean, I remember driving across the state and seeing it all across the state, several people within a square mile radius of me lost sheds. And so I was up in the middle of the night and it was beyond shoveling. There were, you know, people gave me all kinds of suggestions, but um, the shed was so large and so flat that it just was beyond any of these uh, quick tricks. So I had gotten to the point where I had two torpedo heaters that I was running just to to melt the snow off because it was getting to where I really thought the shed was going to go down. And I have these two sheds, so I'd have to get up in the middle of the night and either refuel the torpedo heaters or move them back between the sheds. So that was your experience. So in the middle of the night, I was up at 2 in the morning or whatever, dragging torpedo heaters through the snow and drifts, and they were falling over and the kerosene was spilling, and I was sweaty and angry and saying bad words and all of a sudden it hit me i was like you know if i lose these two sheds i'm I'm a writer with a couple of pole barns full of mostly junk but what if this was my livelihood what if my cows are in this barn what if my machinery my hay for the winter and of course that story played out all across this state mm-hmm. And so that was really the seed for it i just thought what if and then the other bits of the book everything else was just built around real people real farmers real observation the people i grew up with the people who raised me and indeed the people just that winter who were facing this stuff and then the second probably more thematic thing there was just as i've aged i'm 58 now thought i was 59 and then the insurance agent we met with him me and my wife and he I said well I'm 59 so I don't know if I'm eligible for that and he went through his papers and he said no you're 58 <laughs> well that's excellent news come back every week I like this Ray we'll, we'll get down so but I'm, I'm at that age where I'm really trying and I've written about this and more lightly and in, in other books and other essays but I'm kind of trying to balance respect and affection for the past with uh, trying not to fall into the trap of just sentimentality or trying to claw the past into the future and keep, you know, I hate it when everything changes. Well, that's too bad because things change. So there was a lot of that, this farmer just slowly by degrees losing his farm and not just his farm, but his livelihood. And then probably even more painful, all the skills that brought him to where he was were just slowly becoming irrelevant 
this, I, as I'm reading this, this reminded me, I went back to high school, and we mm. had some, I'm not sure this American lit, I think it must have been American lit or Brit lit or whatever, and there was, a, I, I remember the title is called Silent Snow Secret Store. I think it was from a, a French author. Anyway, what it was was that the, it, it was a snowfall, and it, they used snow as kind of an analogy. It was very deep, and the more snow it was, basically it was an analogy of them kind of losing, losing their mind, mm-hmm. you know, until at the end the snow just totally obliterated them. And so as the snow got deeper and deeper, basically they were losing more and more kind of grip of reality. And it almost seemed to be the same thing with your book because as it gets you know as the snow gets deeper he gets more frustrated uh does more extreme things um and i'll let you know someone read the book to realize this out uh were you using snow as an analogy in this or not so much or i'm just kind of pulling something from way in the back yes and no um and first of all it's a novella so when i initially thought of this idea i thought it would be a short story and then i started writing and it just kept getting i realized it wasn't going to fit in a short story but a novella <clears throat> the definition loosely defined is a novella. It's longer than a short story, but shorter than a novel. And I like that form. One of the most influential writers in, in my past was a guy named Jim Harrison, and he was from Michigan. And one of the reasons I loved him was because he would write about hunting and ice fishing, but he could also write about Asian poets, and he could write about wine in the south of France. He was I had this very blue-collar sensibility but a curiosity about the greater world. But he wrote novellas, which are not a very popular form. And people will, so far, probably most listeners have said, well, I have no idea who that guy is. Except you do, because he wrote a novella called Legends of the Fall, which, of course, Brad Pitt made famous with his pectorals. (laughs) But anyways, the snow, yeah. So it served to me two purposes. Number one, it was the snow is unrelenting. It just keeps coming. And I was playing off, I remember, just running out of places to shove the snow, even just plowing our driveway. And... And again, thinking about, well, what if I was trying to get to the cow barn? And what if I was trying to get the manure spreader started? And and so that was part of it. And then secondly, and I don't speak in these terms a bunch, cause, mainly because of being raised by loggers and farmers. And But I love writing. I love poetry. I love just what you can do playing with words. And a big part of me wanted an excuse to write a book where I could sit down and spend three days trying to perfectly describe what hoarfrost on a briar stalk looks like. And so there's a lot, there are those scenes in there. Or like I remember one night I came out, I don't even remember why, but it was in the middle of winter and the deer yard up, you know, and um, it was a full moon night and I stepped out in one of our fields. There were all these black blobs out there and then I made a move and they all huffed around and then coalesced and ran down this trail like black mercury. And it was deer, I mean, Mm -hmm. and so I wanted, part of it was just to indulge my own inner poet, I guess. But then, yes, metaphorically, the snow is pretty, pretty, the whole book is, I mean, the word I use when I warn people about it is unrelenting. It is. Page after chapter, chapter, it's like, what else happens? There's humor in there, but it's the kind of dark humor that most of us who were raised blue collar have, which is like he talks about having this. You know, his truck won't start till he crawls underneath it and whacks the solenoid with a hammer. Right. And it's funny when I do that, because if I'll do that at a more literary city reading, a few people kind of raise an eyebrow. But if you do that at a a rural library, like half the audience is nodding because they've got that truck. Right. (laughs) And then my favorite bit of humor in there is and I've 
said this in other interviews, but it is my contention that the American literary scene has completely ignored the importance of the torpedo heater. <laughs> and so I have the torpedo heater, as you know, plays a role in the book. But there's this one scene that, listen, I have lots of reasons to be humble and lots of reasons not to be impressed with myself. They confront me every day in the mirror. But occasionally I will write something where I kind of am tickled with it. And there's a scene where the farmer gets his torpedo heater set up and lit and points it, you know, probably has it burning in a place he shouldn't. And then he looks down and reads that decal that says, never leave your torpedo heater unattended. And he walks out of the shed. That's because them's my people. Right? <laughs> yeah. So there is some humor in there. But. Well, one characteristic I know of your writing, and, and, and this falls into this book, um, 40 Acres Deep as, as well, is that invariably, your characters, who are some, in many cases kind of rough around the edges, also are blessed with actually a pretty expanded vocabulary. And they'll drop words in that that's like, you know, really? And I mean, like, remember like, uh, I remember like, like, jejun, you know, yeah. which is like, you know, a Latin phrase for, you know, kind of common things. It's like, Wow, that that's amazing, and and there are a number of these sprinkled in throughout. So is this just just you just just trying to have fun or, or throwing things out, or what's? There's two things going on there. Um, one is I'm making fun of myself, and it's it, this is a book of fiction. I made it up. These people don't exist. This character doesn't exist. But of course, you draw on real farmers. You draw on real people. One of the darkest threads of this book is about his marriage where he has been loyal, faithful, and true. This is a husband that didn't cheat. This is a husband that made sure the family was provided for. And yet, he's confronting all the ways he has failed as a partner. And I can tell you that a little bit of that Venn diagram, uh, if my wife was here, she would probably nod. Um, that's partly me. And the bit about him using big words, and he, he talks about philosophy, mm -hmm. and he has some philosophy books. That's twofold on my part. Number one, it's kind of making fun of me because I, I believe Jejun, he, he uses the word correctly, but then he kind of mocks himself for knowing how to spell it but not being able to do some other very basic thing, <laughs> which is me in a nutshell. I was raised a farm kid. I know how to run a pitchfork. I know how to work hard. But I just, I, beyond that, my, I'm not much help in the <laughs> shop. But somehow I got some sort of brain in this. I always say I look like a logger, but I feel things like a poet. And mm -hmm. so there's always that inner struggle uh, with dealing with that sort of thing. So part of it is just me poking a little fun at myself, e even in a more serious vein, when he says, what good is it for you to read all these philosophy books when you really haven't figured anything out? But there is also just a tiny bit of defensiveness in there on behalf of what I'd call my people, because... I am always, I find it a little curious whenever someone is surprised that a guy that looks like me and comes from where I come from knows those words. I'm like, well, why shouldn't I? Those, are, As I always say, why should we uh, let the fancy people hug all the fancy words? Mm -hmm. And then one other thing overlaying with that is we have kind of knee-jerk to a certain amount of anti-intellectualism in the country, and um, I'm nobody's intellectual, but I've certainly benefited from the work of intellectuals and academics, and it's pretty easy to just mock that stuff. But, you know, some of the founding fathers, they were farmers who spoke French and read philosophy. And so I kind of, again, I'm no 
leading, bleeding edge thought leader, but I'm kind of sewing that in there. I'm just, I'm happy and grateful that I was raised by people who knew what a cant hook was, but also let me go to the library. I know one thing we were talking about before we, we began the program is one thing that's different about this piece of work, it's self-published which is uh, something I know you wanted to, to talk about. There's, there's a process involved with it. When we're talking self-published, this isn't uh, you typing on the, uh, the computer and then printing it off on the, the dot matrix uh, right. a few times and all that. There's a process involved, including the decision to, to self-publish to begin with and, and say, hey, I'm going to do this without having somebody else behind me. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. So I... I got started self-publishing. I mean, 25, 30 years ago, my first four books were self-published. It was a totally different time. I had to find someone who had a, one of these brand-new Macintosh computers. I had to find someone who knew there was a, form, or a software program called Quark. And then I had to take these things to a local printer here in Eau Claire, and they laid out the actual pages. You know, So it was a whole different process. So I had gotten started that way. And then, of course, I signed these book deals with HarperCollins and a few other publishers over the years, and that's mostly what I've been doing. But over uh, COVID, when um, you know I couldn't go on the road, so about 50% of our income disappeared, I thought, well, I'm going to try and self-publish a couple of things. just Because I had some smaller co collections of short pieces that other people weren't, the big publishers aren't necessarily interested in. So we'd kind of revisited the process, and of course, it's a lot easier to do these days. Like we can just do our files, put them, upload them, and away you go. Print on demand has made it so that back in the old days, I had to print a thousand copies of my book. Probably back then, didn't really have the money, but you'd do it, and then you'd have to sell them. And now you can print as many as you need, see how it's doing, print a few more. But ultimately, the decision came down to the fact that I have an agent in New York City, and she found me back in 1997 or so. And she didn't make me wealthy and rich or famous, but she, has, she, through her hard work and skills, has helped me have a solid workmanlike career, and I am grateful to her every day. But one of the things, since we've known each other now for about 30 years, she does not blow sunshine. And so if I send her something, she tells me the truth about it. And... I suspected it would be hard to get a big publisher to do a novella. It's, they don't like the form. A really sad, dark book about a farmer in Wisconsin. And I sent it to my agent in New York, and she read it. And she emailed me back, and she said, this is some of the best writing you've done in 20 years. And if she says that, she means it. And then the next sentence was, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to sell this to any of the usual suspects. And I emailed her back, and I said, that's kind of what I expected to hear. And so you've kind of, you freed me up to go ahead, this go this other route. And so I'm a little perversely pleased because we, we went ahead and we, you know, I have a friend, I hired someone local to do the editing, hired someone local to do the layout, hired a local graphic artist to do the cover, which looks utterly, it's gorgeous. Okay. And I can brag on the cover because I didn't do the cover. So I don't have to be Midwestern about that that's a gorgeous co cover and it conveys absolutely the starkness and the mystery and the trouble of the book so that's local um the copies that we sell off our website are printed locally 
uh, the, the distribution, if you order a book off my website, the distribution is handled by a small family-owned company in rural Fall Creek. <laughs> Not mine. I mean, literally okay. someone two miles down the road from me. And so the nice part of that is that a certain percentage of it, and it, oh, I was going to also say, if you come to one of my live events, if I'm selling books there, those were printed in Eau Claire County. Now, the rest, if you order off Amazon, that's a print-on-demand book. Amazon will be printing that. It's available as an audio book and e-books, all that kind of stuff. There you go through the platforms. Mm -hmm. But after being told by the big publishers that it really wasn't for them, this thing is now, I think, we're, we're, we've sold thousands of them. Wow. And, they're pick, and it's picking up. And it's word of mouth. You've never heard of this book. This book will never show up on any charts. And I also want to be clear. I'm still working with HarperCollins and another big publisher named Sourcebooks. They're terrific at what they do as long as it's in their lane. And I'm fortunate, I think, that I'm 50, did I mention I'm 58 and not 59? <laughs> I've been doing this long enough that I don't, I love being able to say that I publish books with HarperCollins, but I don't need to say that. And I'm, I'm just happy to do whatever is best for the book. I've got a few other questions here too, but I I want to move a little bit beyond the book. I just go on and on, don't I? No, I but, but it was great stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I've got well, one question, final question I'll ask on, on the book before we move on to a few things. But um, I just wanted, you know, has, would you say has mental illness played a role with folks you're familiar with? I mean, you said you had your your own issues of, of you know dealing with uh, the winter and the cold, and your own things. But I mean, you also have to look around. I mean. The farming community itself are, I won't say full of, but they're, th th this is, even in my own mind, this is a stereotypical farmer, um, especially maybe of the old school, and trying to deal with the new. I, I enjoy you, you make this uh, kind of this juxtaposition between the, the other farmers down the hill and using the new technology and, you know, whatever, and, and, and just this sense of both of, pride and disgust and uh, anxiety, um, you know, as, as you've seen this play out. But the the solo farmer who, who does so much, you know, he's been taught to be self-sufficient and this is all about me. And mental illness is all about people say, not willing to get help because I've got to figure this out my own. And when that doesn't happen or can happen, something breaks in them. Is that what's going on here? Yeah, I see. So since the book has come out, I've spoken to at least a couple uh, of organizations devoted to farmers and mental health. I mean, the good news is it's being talked about. And I think that's true. You know, you hear it with athletics. You hear it with, you know, we are talking about it more. That doesn't mean that the problem is necessarily getting better at any sort of a fast rate. And I also, I've written, I wrote a book called Montaigne and Barn Boots, and I was really, I had a chapter in there where I really talked about my own anxiety and depression and about having panic attacks. And I've never been officially diagnosed. I've never gone, uh, I've, I'm, and I say this with gratitude, not with avoidance. I, the way I've always put it is on my darkest days, I've never gone uh, looking for the bus but I didn't know if I would step out of the way if I saw it coming, you know, mm. it's like that. And I do, in my family, we have diagnosed clinical depression. And I can say this because he let me say it in the other book. I have a brother who's a logger who's, t he could take all three of us and stuff us under that counter over there. Um, and he talked to me one day. I started talking about my panic attacks kind of 
not embarrassedly, but just sort of, I don't know if I should talk about this. And his eyes widened and he just started going, oh man, you, I do, this happens to me. Wow. And he's since uh, sought some specific help. And so I think the good news is it's, it's, it's more out in the open. Um, and the bad news is the conditions that create it are not getting any better. And especially, you're right, for the, my brother's a solo logger. Uh, the farmers who are still hanging on, trying to run their own little operation. It's, oh, man. You know, and again, uh, also, I I've, I follow a lot of social media accounts that are ag-related. Individual farmers, organizations. The big guys are having trouble, too. I mean, it, we tend to divide ourselves up so easily these days, but a lot of the problems are common to the endeavor. Yeah. We got to bring things up a little bit okay. here. So on the hopefully the most more enjoyable side, and not that this book was enjoyable, but it had a really deep message. Uh, you're doing something with uh, PBS Wisconsin, uh, Michael Perry on the road. How has that worked out? That 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 that's that's a fun show. That was a blast. Yeah, that was a one-off documentary they did, and you can mm -hmm. you can find it if you well if you go to sneezingcow.com, we have links to it. But if you go to PBS Wisconsin, I think you'll find it on their site too. But yeah, I've made this weird career out of taking my books and turning them into stories and telling them in front of people. And it's turned into a pretty big chunk of what our family does for a living. And so they literally followed me around in my 2002 Toyota Tour van that's got two out of four hubcaps. And one of the great sweet secrets about this state is we have these wonderful opera houses. I, I have a development deal with an L.A. production company right now. And I was, uh, I, by the way, I'd like to just say that it really at this point means nothing, but I can just say so. Well, it sounds cool. <laughs> I know it does. <laughs> Someone asked me, what's a development deal? I said, well, I'm not sure, but I've got one. <laughs> so, uh, but I was in a meeting and I offhand, we were talking about a script and I just mentioned something about, well, the character you know, could play with his band in this opera house in rural Wisconsin. They're like, you have opera houses in Wisconsin? I said, yeah, man, they're everywhere. And so they filmed part of that special in the Stoughton Opera House and then uh, in the Mabel Tainter, which is in Menominee, Wisconsin. So beautiful facilities. Beautiful facilities. And yeah, it was really fun. They worked so hard. They had such a great crew. It was cold. It was miserable. And then they filmed the live shows and that's an unbelievable production. They show up with the truck, you know, it was, it was a lot like Monday Night Football. It was that sort of. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. right. Yeah. Pretty, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Carrie Underwood doing the, yeah. the, the opening, the big opening open. song, song. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I try to stay humble. <laughs> but yes, that's a blast. And you're not, you're right. I, I've been talking today about the dark stuff, but I also, people say, well, how did you learn to be a storyteller? And I go, well, sitting under the hay wagon, waiting for the next hay wagon. And I also tell people, I'm about the third funniest person in my family. I just couldn't fix tractors. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Last thing I want to talk about in another part of the world are uh, you in the long bed still a thing? And uh, you got shows lined up yet, or you have you taken a hiatus? No, we're we play whenever I can. I wrote a bunch of songs, and I keep writing songs, and we play them out. Uh, we do. We only do one cover. And that is Waymore's Blues by Waylon Jennings. <laughs> but everything else, we do our own original music. I write the songs and sing them. And then I've just got, I can brag on the band. Again, it's kind of like the book cover. It's not me, it's them. They're crackerjack. They're pros, literally. And, and my friends. And we have such a great time on stage. And so we're actually 
trying to expand my audience. Uh, we're in November. We're going to be over. We're crossing the Minnesota state line, and we're playing in Minneapolis at the place called the Ice House. So, nice. And this is our second time. So we're building a big following over there. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the the hardest part for me is just finding a place when we time on the calendar when we when we're all free but i know next april we're actually doing a series of dates so if you go to sneezingcow.com and then there's an events page the long bed stuff is always on there is your daughter still singing with you whenever she can yeah we did a show this summer and she came up uh, one of the great joys of my life is just to have her join me on stage and sing with me and she holds her own i tell her if you lug the gear and sell the merch you can come on stage for a couple of songs (laughs) (laughs) you said set a high bar don't you (laughs) Well, she needs to learn that, that this is uh, how you fund the fun. <laughs> well, I know, boys. Uh, I, I I finished up my uh, my water. Um, <laughs> well, the, well, the, well played. Well, the, <laughs> to to compare this to water is a disservice to water, but uh, <laughs> it got it, it got the job done. But you know what makes it all worthwhile and outstanding uh, conversation? It's you know me being the Italian. It is any any bad pasta can be made up for with a great. Great ragu. Well, you know, Michael Perry here's the outstanding ragu. Threw oh, in a couple man. of good good meatballs into the conversation as well. There'll be other weeks where we'll have a better beer, but it's hard to top this <laughs> as a guest. See, I'm, I, when he gets that development deal, you can reach out you, to me too. So that's right. Make, make friends with the power players. <laughs> He'll just send a car around for me then. I won't have to show up in the Toyota van. Well, we'll leave it at that. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, and thank you for joining Scott and me talk with uh, Michael Perry over a beverage today. Uh, if you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rater rating on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, follow us on Apple and Spotify or the Northwestern Bank website. Uh, it's Bank with the Beer is sponsored by Northwestern Bank, building stronger communities where people matter.